HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's September, and as the days get shorter and temperatures cooler, it's time to go back to school. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at how lunchtime is changing from elementary schools through college, whether classes are remote or in person. While there was some information about where families could access food, it was spread out on many different websites. I'm seeing people, you know, advocate for, like, going back into school and... A main reason is, you know, food insecurity, like kids go to school and they get fed. And I'm just, that's a whole other thing of like, fight for kids to be fed versus like going to school. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Lisa Held. Welcome to a new season of The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. 2020 has been a tumultuous year for, well, everyone, everywhere, and especially for many farmers and the food system overall, which is why I spent last spring and summer talking to farmers, food company CEOs, and advocates about the pandemic's effects on agriculture and other aspects of the food system. A recurring theme throughout those conversations was that the pandemic exposed weaknesses in the systems we depend on to grow, distribute, and access food. So while many are still struggling and the pandemic is far from over, for this fall season, I wanted to turn the focus towards how we can use those lessons learned to move forward. How can we build equitable systems that produce healthy food and support farmers and farm workers, and that are not only sustainable, but are resilient as we look towards a future that will most certainly involve other crises? This season, I'm going to be having some big picture conversations that get at that question. The first episode of the season is a recording of an on-farm conversation I had with Jeff Moyer, the CEO of the Rodale Institute, in August. 
The Rodale Institute is considered one of the birthplaces of the organic movement, and it has been a leader in organic research and farmer training for more than 70 years. Think of this as a big picture check-in to assess if and why organic food and farming matters now and for the future. Enjoy. Jeff, thanks for sitting down to talk with me today. You're welcome, Lisa. It's a real pleasure for me to be here. And when you say here, we should explain where we are. Uh, I have been recording a lot of interviews from my apartment in front of a computer screen over the last few months. And today is a real treat because we are on the farm at the Rodale Institute in Cutstown. Is that how you say it? We, we pronounce it Cutstown. Cutstown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, and I have just spent the day with your researchers and um, farm staff really getting to see so much of Rodale's work from the legendary farm systems trial, um, vegetable systems trial, the hogs, um, which, oh man, there were piglets, they were super cute. Um, I mean, we saw, we saw a lot and I've just been really getting to take in um, this, this space. And how big is it actually? Well, let me start by saying the Rodale Institute is much larger than, than even just, this, just farm. this farm, right? Right. Yeah. This happens to be our world headquarters, and we call it our main campus. Uh, this campus, this research facility, uh, is around a little over 330 acres okay. in size. So, yeah, so we barely scratched the surface today. That's I mean, right. <laughs> I yeah. probably saw five of them, maybe. Yeah, right? we, it's, it's really challenging to bring a group in and show them all of what we do in, in, in one day. But yeah. it's, it's exciting to have you here and have that opportunity. Absolutely. So I want to talk to you. I want to spend this, this episode really digging into um, big questions about organic agriculture. Um, I mean, Rodale is such an important place. And you know, I really want to get into some of these bigger questions about um, the present and, and really the future of what the food system looks like. Um, but before we do that, just briefly, for people who don't know Rodale, who mm -hmm. might be listening, can you just give a, a brief summary of, you know, the how many years? The last 70 the years. The last 70 sure. years we'll to, of Rodale. We'll try and jam 70 years of history into just a, a minute or two. I'll, yeah. I'll try to do that for you. Uh, the Rodale Institute has been around officially since 1947. We predate that by about five years. Uh, in 1942, our founder, J.I. Rodale, wrote some words on a blackboard. He said that healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. From that little uh, six-word quote that he wrote on a blackboard grew the whole organic industry that we know of today. Because J.I. Rodale was not a farmer, but he bought a farm in 1940, and he was really interested in, in looking at how we could produce food without chemicals. Uh, not being a farmer, he approached agriculture from a totally new and novel perspective, and he was concerned about how the food that he was producing on the farm would have impact his own personal life because he was gonna eat and consume the food he produced. And he was wondering, not being a scientist, not being a farmer, how the chemicals that the industry was using, whether they were salt-based fertilizers or uh, pre- and post-World War uh, II uh, insecticides and herbicides, how those chemicals were impacting his own personal health because he was eating the food that they were, mm -hmm. that they were used to produce. 
And so if you sort of follow the logic of his, uh, his quote that healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people, then the, the goal of agriculture is to produce healthy people. So any tools that don't improve your health should not be used in the production system was sort of his mindset. And, and of course, we agree with that. And it makes perfect sense when you think about it. So back in uh, 1947, when we were founded, a Roundup, for example, did not exist mm. as an herbicide. And in J.I. Rodell's world and in our world, we would never have created that or used it because it doesn't really help farmers produce healthy food. There is nobody in the industry that says the reason we spray Roundup is to make people healthy. The reason we spray it is to kill weeds. And yes, it does that. I mean, it works. Does it, it kills yeah. weeds. It, well, it does what it's supposed to do. But a goal of a farmer is not to kill weeds, it's to produce healthy food. Now, we do have to manage weeds, of course, on a farm so that we can get our annual crops that people consume in and out of, of our fields. But using tools that make us sick are not tools that we would ever consider using in an organic or a regenerative organic system. And that's all based on the history of where we come from. Uh, G.I. Rodell passed away in 1971, uh, and his son Robert Rodell took over. Robert Rodell was very interested in the ideas around uh, environmental protection and uh, climate change. He was an early proponent of the discussion around climate change. And he knew from childhood on up that the way we manage the soil would have an impact on its health and its ability to sequester carbon. So if that was the case in his mind, why aren't more farmers transitioning to organic so mm -hmm. that we can protect and preserve our climate and continue to live as a species? So what he did was he began searching for another word that reached out a little bit beyond organic and uh, began talking back in the late 1970s, early 1980s about the concepts and the ideas around regenerative agriculture. He was never a proponent of the word sustainable. Uh, sustainability is really, when you think about it, uh, an unexciting word. It means you're trying to hold on to what you've got. You're trying to sustain that position. Where what Robert Rodell was challenging us to do as farmers, as scientists, as, as educators, was think beyond the, the, the idea of sustainability or conservation and really using basic biological principles, think about how we can use biology to regenerate the resources we use to produce food so that we no longer need or utilize a lot of external inputs on farms, but really focus on those internal inputs that we have, which is the biology of the soil. Well, so many of the things that you're talking about right now um, were these concepts that the Rodale family, whether it was J.R. Rodale or um, Robert Rodale, yeah. were talking about decades and decades ago. And it seems like now, some of these concepts are just sort of entering mainstream conversation in a bigger way. I mean, even like you mentioned, he was using the word regenerative. And I think that word in what the past two years, three years yeah. has suddenly become really, why, why is, why are these concepts kind of bubbling to the surface now after all this time? Well, typically concepts, philosophies, and, and, and even words, uh, take time to grow into the general language of the population. And they start with people who are uh, visionary, either visionary or at least give themselves the time to think conceptually or philosophically about particular problems and situations. Uh, Bob Rodell gave himself that time to think through these concepts. 
traveled around the world talking to other uh, thought leaders on these topics. And that's how he gravitated towards this idea about regeneration. What we're seeing happening now, uh, fortunately or, or unfortunately, is that the word sustainable fell into the hands of marketers. So every product was sustainably produced. And natural. And natural, and light, and new, and improved, until the word sustainable means everything, and it means nothing yeah. at the same time. Marketers began in the last few years looking for another word that they could use to change up their, their ability to sell products or, or food products yeah. into the supply chain. And they latched onto the word regenerative because it was out there because the Rodale family and the Rodale Institute was pushing that idea. Now, of course, uh, many organizations and food companies or uh, companies of, uh, uh, of, of all types are trying to redefine the word regenerative to mean what they want it to mean, making it easier, of course, setting the bar low so that it's easier for them to uh, find a supply chain to work in their favor. So like using it with like, uh, I think what you mean is for instance, like a lot of um, conventional farming systems are claiming to be regenerative because they're doing say no-till, but they're still using chemicals. Exactly. So how do you, how do you take the word that you believe is about, it's sort of an add-on to organic, right? It's, it's going beyond organic. And how do you hold on to that word <laughs> and have it mean what you want it to mean? Well, or is it a lost cause? No, no, it's not a lost cause at all. Let me step back okay. and, and, and sort of think through what happened with the word organic. In order for the organic industry to grow, we really believed here at Rodale Institute that the word had to be given away. We couldn't hold tight control of the word. And so we worked hand in glove with many other folks in the organic community to give the word, more or less, to the United States government. And we did that by, through uh, the, uh, the law, which is the, the uh, Organic Food and Fiber Production Act of 1990. So way back in 1990, we handed it off to the federal government through law. Uh, that law got passed down to the USDA, that's where they handed it off, and they buried it into the Ag Marketing Division of, that, uh, of the USDA to create all the regulations around the law. So Congress passes a law, but then the, uh, the different uh, departments within the federal government have to develop all the rules and regulations of how to enact that or right. implement that law. Uh, and so we can all agree that the federal government, regardless of which part, major party or minor party you are, gets a lot of things wrong. But they do get some things right. They happen to get the federal uh, organic rule pretty good. Uh, because they created a National Organic Standards Board made up of peers in the community that help to direct and guide the USDA on what it means for something to be organic. And we created a very diverse uh, set of rules and regulations uh, that exist out there today uh, that have formulated the backbone of the organic industry. The challenge we have, of course, is whenever you give something to the federal government, it's, uh, uh, they want to simplify things. So many of the concepts that were uh, buried in organic got lost in the translation from private industry into the hands of the federal government. One of those uh, items was the, the concept around continuous improvement. Because it's really hard for a government agency to create regulation around the idea of continuous improvement. I mean, how do you, how do you build a rule around that? How yeah. do you certify that? Uh, so because it was challenging, they just set it aside. 
The same thing happened with soil health parameters because in the, in the 1990s we didn't have a lot of science around soil health uh, indices and, and metrics. Animal welfare was not an issue they wanted to deal with, neither was social justice. So what the Rodale Institute has done in the last few years is worked with partners in the, uh, uh, the, the packaged goods industry to create a standard that's that. just a tractor going by. We'll just tell people. Yeah, a tractor with a, with a green <laughs> Some more scene setting for you. <laughs> Sorry. And that may continue throughout our conversation. <laughs> I, I sort of apologize for it, but sort of not, as, as us and our neighbors need to get our field work done. So our research Absolutely. team is are working. So what we did was recognize that we wanted to bring some of these concepts back to the word organic. So when we talk about regenerative agriculture, to get to your point, mm -hmm. uh, we link it tightly to the word organic because we really believe that the first step in becoming regenerative is to get the chemicals and the synthetic chemicals out of our production systems. So we link the word regenerative to organic. We have worked very closely in our, the creation of our rules and regulations around the, the seal, the certification seal, mm -hmm. which we call ROC, our regenerative organic certification, mm -hmm. so the ROC standard. Um, we worked very closely with the USDA in creating that standard to make sure that we did not infringe at all or on the uh, territory that belongs to the federal government as they own that word as it relates to the production of food and, and fiber in this country. And then we also worked internationally with the iPhone family of standards to ensure that uh, for those products that never touch the shores of the U.S. Uh, and do not fall under the jurisdiction of the USDA, that those also can be certified under a ROC standard and move freely uh, around the globe. Because we believe that if we can improve soil health in India or Africa, uh, different countries of Africa, or uh, Europe or South America, that carbon sequestration benefits all of us on the planet. So that's just as good as doing it here in the United States. Of course, we want U.S. domestic farmers to transition as well, uh, but we do have an international standard. And the standard, as I said, is based on organic, but it has three additional pillars. It has a pillar that's focused on soil health and healthy soil. It has a pillar focused on animal welfare, because we don't believe that you can really have a regenerative system if we abuse animals that are either consumed or used in the production practices. We know that in many countries, animal power is still used and utilized for the production of food, uh, and those animals should not be mistreated. And then we also have a social justice pillar, mm -hmm. because you can't be truly regenerative if you destroy people's lives or destroy communities in the process of producing organic food. Right. You mentioned that you thought in the beginning that the USDA really got it right with the organic standard, mostly. Um, and I've heard some people talk now about the need for a regenerative organic certification sort of as a response to the failure of the USDA in, I guess, th this concept that you were talking about, continuous improvement, the, their failure to um, maintain the integrity of organic on issues like animal welfare, um, like the, the organic livestock rule that wasn't that didn't get moved through, right. and um, hydroponics and organic things like that. How do you feel about the job that the USDA is doing now on organic? Well, I, I would say that the the job the USDA is doing it fluctuates. 
based on administrations. We are currently have an administration that is trying to reduce rules and regulations. So anytime you have a segment of the industry that is asking for regulation, and really the organic industry is the only industry that I'm aware of that continuously approaches the federal government asking for or challenging them to create additional regulation. Most industries, whether it's the banking industry, the, uh, the energy industries, uh, they all want less regulation, and we're asking for <laughs> That's more. That's a really so, good point. So, the, the, you know, government isn't set up to respond to that question, and so it, it frustrates and confuses them, particularly in an administration that is trying to reduce regulation. So what we're saying is that we think overall the USDA has done a good job. Many segments of the industry, uh, of course, are always challenging regulations, trying to find loopholes, trying to find ways to capture a percentage of the market that the organic industry represents without doing all of the work. Uh, I, I don't have a PhD. If I could just circumvent the rules and get one in the mail, I'd probably have one. But that's not how it works. You have to put in the hard work. And so we're suggesting that we want to create a high bar standard in partnership with the USDA. So it's a, it's a really nice partnership between nonprofits, which is the Rodale Institute, for-profit industries, which are the packaged good in, uh, community where, that really has a megaphone in the marketplace and brand recognition, and then also government agencies like the USDA. Uh, that kind of partnership, I think, enables us to be nimble, dynamic, and still lean on the power and the resources that only an organization like the federal government can bring to bear on issues and problems. Right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I'm Lisa Held a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly one billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Jeff Moyer from the Rodale Institute. So one thing I wanted to ask you about that we haven't talked about yet is we spent a lot of the day looking at the research trials that I mentioned in the beginning. Rodale has done a lot of different trials over the years. What do you think of all the studies, the trials, the, the research that's come out of, of Rodale, what do you think has had the biggest impact on the food system in this country? Well, I think we have to think through why Rodale's doing research in the first place. As we were approaching uh, Washington, 
with these thoughts and ideas around organic production and regenerative organic production, policymakers would continuously say to us, you have a really great story, but so do, does or do lots of other organizations mm. and people. What makes your story more compelling or different? Ideally, you should have some science to back up what you're saying. And so we made a con real concerted effort uh, by purchasing this larger tract of land. Prior to this, we were operating out of a smaller farm, uh, much closer to the city of Allentown. It was G.I. Rodale's original farm. Uh, and we needed more room to expand. We came here mainly to do scientific research. Now, we understand and, and, uh, and fully realize that a small group of scientists, uh, right now we have uh, about 10 PhDs on staff, but a small group of scientists that want to change the world is a bit audacious. And so we knew we had to work in partnership with other groups. So our goal with our science was to produce enough real novel science, uh, get it published, and draw the attention of much larger research organizations like the USDA again, or land-grant universities, uh, or universities in other countries that were agriculturally related or were interested in the connection between agriculture and human health. Okay. So by being able to create those partnerships, we then leverage our research against far greater dollars to have more impact farther and faster. So we deliberately target some of our early research on uh, grain crops, for example, because we know that corn and soybeans are grown in almost every major country in the world. So if we can have an impact on corn and soybeans, we can change a lot of acres and a lot of, well, move a lot of dollars rather quickly. If, on the other hand, we might have chosen blackberries or uh, you know, rutabagas or pick any uh, parsnips, uh, we could have done research on that, had similar findings, and people would have said, so what? So in the beginning, our research was um, geared to addressing some of the, the agronomic issues around production. As many farmers said, organic agriculture works, but it only works on a garden scale. You can't really scale it up to feed the world. Mm -hmm. And so some of our early research was really focused on how do we uh, produce uh, agricultural crops organically at a larger scale. And we were able to do that. And so then farmers would say to us, or policymakers would say, okay, you can do it, you can do it at scale, but what's really the difference? Why would we want to? So now we switched focus and we started focusing on the soil health aspects and digging in deeper and showing people that there's a real difference in the quality of the food that you're producing when it's produced organically. And we continue on with that work today. We also wanted to look at the impact that soil management has on climate change. So we wanted to focus in on carbon and looking at soil health components. And by doing that, we've been able to have a major impact on agricultural land. And, and the fact that we uh, used a lot of the data from our farming systems trial to help guide and direct the USDA as they created the National Organic Program uh, and based it on some of the practices and principles that we were working on here. And then, of course, driving that larger research enterprise that exists in the agricultural community. It's all part of what we're trying to do. So it's, it's challenging to focus in on one particular thing, but I would say overall our research was really focused on building partnerships, leveraging the work of others, and bringing the expertise of many more world-class scientists to this conversation around organic and regenerative organic production.
Yeah. I want to go back to what you said um, on the question of scale. I think that's a really interesting comment. Um, the okay, so you, we figured out that you can do it at scale, but why would you want to? And I was thinking today when we were looking at um, the trials, com the, the farm systems trials that compare, say, conventional corn to organic no-till corn to organic corn that's tilled. Is that right? You, you no. got it. Yeah, you were paying attention. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was thinking... This is, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see when you look over 40 years that you can get the same yields and, and that organic corn can be grown in this, in this way. But from what I understand of, of Rodale's ideas about the food system, the way you see the food system is not necessarily that you want to just be growing millions of acres of corn to feed cattle or to go into packaged foods, is it? Or I don't. The, is or, that or, is that or, what we want? Or the or, biofuels industry? Or biofuels? Yeah. I mean, forty so. percent of the corn in the in the United States goes into biofuels. It's right. never consumed by animal or or human. Right. Or it goes into some other industrial use. Um, so what's the importance then of looking at doing it organically? Looking at that crop. Well, if you look, if you look at the sort of the maturation of the Rodeo Institute as we continue to be dynamic and shift and change you'll see that we've moved a lot of our energy from uh, corn and soybeans because we wanted to make an impact and we have, mm -hmm. and there is now corn and soybean, organic corn and soybean research on almost every major land grant university in the country. And now we're beginning to focus more on vegetable crops. Mm. You know, we're, we're feeding the world fruits and vegetables using about 3% of our arable land. Now, we know from conversations you may have just had with Dr. Scott Stoll uh, and, and the work that we're doing here at the Institute, focusing more on plant-based diets and getting people to not consume as much meat. Uh, I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan and, and, uh, and, and don't uh, uh, claim to be. Uh, but as a world, we consume on, on par uh, too much meat. Absolutely, yeah. But the USDA says that if we ate the diet that they, the USDA, says we should be eating, we do not have nearly enough land in um, fruit and vegetable production. Mm. We would have to probably double that. But doubling it still only takes 6% of the land. It means 94% is yeah. still something else. It's, it's uh, pasture or, or grain crop production. So we really believe that we can easily feed a much larger world population. Than, than we currently are. We have a research site in uh, Marion, Iowa, outside of Cedar Rapids. One of the reasons we're there is because many communities in Iowa are actually food deserts. So you, if you live in Iowa, in one of those regions, you literally live on some of the richest farmland in the nation, and yet no food is being produced. I was just there in January. And that's and sad. I, yeah, I couldn't, I mean, there's nothing for, for miles and miles nothing to eat and you're in the and if you do find the, something to eat it was produced somewhere else and trucked in and yeah. then we're going why is that uh we really shouldn't be in that situation and we we think of all of the the uh, food crops that a state like iowa and i don't want to pick on iowa per se because any of the states that start with the letter i including ohio could do the same thing <laughs> uh they uh they really could be producing a lot more food we shouldn't have to depend on long supply chains from California. Here in Pennsylvania, we could produce more food. Uh, the state of Maryland and Delaware used to be a breadbasket of America. We'd all moved west, but they could reinstitute that, and we could begin producing high-value vegetable crops again. 
in these rich soils that we have in the east, where we have very dense populations. You and I were talking about that earlier, how the east coast has a, a great density of people who uh, have a sh short supply chain, particularly this time of the year. Now, we can't grow year-round. We don't have a Mediterranean climate like Cal much of California does. Uh, but for a good part of the year, we can produce a lot of food that consumers could be eating. So we think we really need to be doing that and shift our production over time from the corn that you can't see it, but I'm looking over your shoulder <laughs> at, at a cornfield, and, and it's beautiful and lush green organic corn. But the reality is it should be vegetables, and over time it will be. Right. So we're in the midst of a pandemic right now, um, but we're also facing a much bigger challenge um, now and in the future, which is the climate crisis. What has Rodale's research found that can help us think about how organic farming might help us meet the challenges of the climate crisis? Well, let's, let's use the pandemic as a launching pad for that conversation. Uh, nobody wanted COVID-19 or a coronavirus to impact our lives, certainly not in the way that it has. But if there is a bright spot in the coronavirus, it is that it has pointed out many of the frailties in our systems. It doesn't matter whether it's our health system, our energy system, or in the case of what we're talking about, our food system. Our food system uh, is greatly impacted, our supply chains are impacted, uh, and the bottom line is, when you look at our health system, our human health system, we were failing before COVID. We had a very sick population and COVID has just pointed out the, the extremeness of those illnesses and sicknesses uh, and the frailty that people were living under. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing is true with climate. If we look at what's happening with the climate uh, and our ability to sequester carbon in, and get it out of the atmosphere, the only tool that we really have are the tools that nature has given us. Uh, if a scientist were to have discovered photosynthesis and said, I created this, would have been, you or I, if we did it, would be Nobel <laughs> Prize winners and we'd be the star attraction at every scientific convention from here to the end of time. The fact that we have it naturally, we seem to take it for granted. Mm. But it really is the only tool that allows us to capture CO2 out of the atmosphere. Everything that you see around us, Pennsylvania is a very green state for your listeners here this time of the year. It's extremely green. That greenness is foliage capturing sunlight, taking carbon dioxide out of the air, sticking it in the soil, and giving us oxygen to breathe. That's what it does. We need to facilitate that. If you drive from here to California today, you will see mostly green. If you wait about eight weeks and drive from here to California, you will see mostly brown. Mm -hmm. That is a crime. Everything that's green today should be green all year round. We can do that even under the snow. We can protect and conserve and sequester carbon out of the atmosphere and have a true impact on climate change. The soil is the best sink that we have to, to capture it and store it, and we need to do everything we can within our power to uh, facilitate that happening. So that means consumers have a voice in the marketplace and a, and a voice in how we do that. Because one of the reasons we created the, going back to our regenerative organic certification, those are processes of production that really focus in on soil health. So we're sequestering carbon in a regenerative organic system. So consumers are going to eat anyway as they begin to look in the marketplace and say, how can I 
a person, uh, I don't know, selling insurance in Atlanta. How can I make a difference? I don't have a farm. I don't manage the land. Uh, you can do it by the way you choose to spend your purchasing dollar. And we can pull the, you know, our science has indicated that if all the arable and pasture land in the world were converted to regenerative organic systems, we could sequester 100% of the carbon that we're emitting today with no other changes. Now, we're not suggesting that we don't change the way we use energy or the way we drive or the cars that we use or moving to more sustainable uh, power systems like solar power or wind power. Mm -hmm. We suggest we do that. But if we didn't do that, the soil and agriculture alone could be a huge uh, solution to the problem. I guess, again, I say mathematically, up to 100% of the problem could be solved simply by changing the way we farm. We already have the tools, we just need to implement them. But it feels like so such a huge gap between the system we have now and getting to a place like that. I mean, you come to a place like Rodale and it feels, this kind of farming feels possible, but you go to a place like Iowa and it doesn't. It feels like, I mean, it would take decades and decades and decades to make any progress. Like, do we have enough time? We have to start now. Uh, I am not a doomsday advocate. I think we have, we have as much time as we have and yeah. we have to start. Is it a big problem? Yes. Are there industries and individuals who are making billions of dollars with the system just the way it is? Yes, they are. Are they going to be advocates for change? No, they are not. Is there a place and a role for them to play in change? Absolutely. They bring to bear a ton of resources and, and knowledge and intelligence that could be uh, uh, put into place to, to see these changes enacted further and faster. It's always easier if you can plan for a catastrophe and work towards it in advance. Unfortunately, of course, we as humans wait till something cataclysmic happens and then decide to change. Uh, we hope that isn't the case uh, now. We see that farmers are making change, and that change is being driven by consumers. So again, your listeners are really the people who have the power to make change. If, if we suddenly said, you know, we're no longer going to purchase food or fiber that's being produced in a way that's not regenerative. I'm sorry, that just doesn't work for me anymore. Farmers would change. Farmers would have to change. Big ag would have to change. There's a role for them to play. We need their help. We need their technology. We're not, uh, regenerative organic is not adverse to technology. We're not suggesting by any stretch that of the imagination that we go back to farming the way it was, pick any time period you want. That's mm -hmm. not our suggestion. Uh, we continuously say that organic farming or regenerative organic farming is the future of agriculture. It's not the past. It's currently a, a piece of the present, but it really is the future. We know that if we can bring universities, if we can bring the, the USDA, if we can bring scientists and, and folks with incredible resources to bear on this problem, we can move quickly and, and, and build new modern systems that still allow farmers in Iowa to produce corn and soybeans if they want to, to still drive whatever color tractor they prefer and wear whatever brand hat or pants they choose to wear. Uh, we're not asking them to change that. So their farm will not look drastically different. It will just function drastically different. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. 
Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.